I'd like to welcome our first sponsor to the official Do Good Better podcast, and that is DonorDoc. Listen, as a nonprofit, DonorDoc knows that you wear many different hats, and that's why they are here to help you make your life easier. DonorDoc helps you connect with your donors on a deeper level and provides you with the tools to become the ultimate fundraiser. There are other instantly cool features too, but we know connecting and staying connected with your donors are high on most of your priority lists. Hey, guess what? DonorDoc is so awesome, and I'm telling you, so awesome, that to everyone listening, they are giving you a 100% discount off your first month. That's right, 100% off. It's absolutely free to use for your first month. All you have to do is use the referral code DOGOODBETTER, and you're set. Again, do good better. It's simple. It's easy. Head to DonorDoc.com to learn more and get started. Hey, thanks, DonorDoc, for being an official sponsor of the official Do Good Better podcast. Your organization is awesome, but sometimes you want to be even awesomer. It's time to get your fundraising on with your host, fundraising expert and author, Patrick Kirby. Oh, hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kirby. And of course, this podcast is uh, dedicated for all of the small and medium-sized nonprofits doing wonderfully great big things. But sometimes you need to talk to big name personalities and uh, amazing individuals who have made a career in doing awesome things, not only nationally, but globally. Today's one of those days. I would like to welcome our guest today, uh, Chris Putnam Walkerly. Uh, she is a like twenty year philanthropic, uh, ultra awesome uh, fundraising uh, consultant and uh, fundraiser in general. You've probably seen her if you've been paying attention in the I don't know the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Entrepreneur, NPR, Forbes. We've all heard of those things, right? Uh, she is amazing, and it has uh, said. Yeah, I think we want to talk today, and I'm super blessed to have you. Chris, how are you? Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited. All right. So uh, for those who are kind of flipping through YouTube and they're looking through all of our their podcast channels and they say, I like the sound of this, um, how did you get started and what's kind of your background and how did you get to where you are today, fundraising-wise, here in the nonprofit world? Yes. So I've been advising as a a philanthropy advisor for the past 20 years. And, you know, my foray started with political organizing. I, I, my first job out of college was working for a nonprofit organization in the San Francisco area, trying to stop U.S. military involvement in Central America. Um, Somehow I ended up getting a master's in social work. And then shortly thereafter, I went to work at Stanford University, uh, actually, where I was evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs. Uh, That was funded by a major statewide foundation, uh, the California Wellness Foundation. And what I learned, really, what intrigued me about philanthropy was that if you, you know, as a funder, if nothing else, you have a lot of money, right? Uh, But if you also have smarts, if you bring in the right people, look at top research, bring in the right experts and really figure out what are the ways we can get to the root cause and solve some of these problems, you can create a lot of positive change. And they, at the time, were really focused on switching the notion of youth violence from a juvenile justice problem to a public health problem. 
Mm. And they were at the forefront. And I really appreciated that. So I thought, well, maybe I should continue working on in philanthropy. So I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. And that was at the time, uh, this was the late 90s, way back in the day, um, the, I believe the largest foundation in the country, if not the world. And so that was a fascinating experience also to really understand strategic philanthropy. And then I was, you know, basically in Silicon Valley during the dot-com boom. Uh, the biggest you know, challenge facing philanthropy at the time was our assets are growing so quickly. How can we possibly give our money away <laughs> this year? <laughs> so they hired lots of consultants. So it was uh, fairly easy to get going. Um, I did a lot of consulting with Charles and Helen Schwab's foundation and many other uh, family foundations, health, uh, health conversion, private, corporate. And that's kind of where I got started. And I think that's the best part about this uh, for the audience who's the small and medium-sized nonprofits who are saying, I can never get the advice of someone who's worked in sort of these big things. That's the beauty of this podcast is we're bringing on folks like you, Chris, uh, to help us understand that and, uh, and really take some of the tips and tricks that you've learned in some of the biggest nonprofit organizations and the biggest foundations and how we can apply it to your day-to-day life. So um, this world is now bizarre, and it's a world that we, five months ago, had um, a way greater plans, and now all of those are not a thing anymore. Um, what are you seeing in your clients and uh, in, in your realm that is the most jarring or the most interesting since we have entered this sort of global pandemic um, in general? Yeah. Um, so I see three things. One is um, both among nonprofits and many foundations, there are a lot of both types of organizations that have basically gone into hiding. Yeah. So they are either out of fear or feeling overwhelmed or sort of deer in the headlights and not quite sure what to do or how to respond. They're nowhere to be found, right? They're under the covers. They're in the fetal position. Um, they are just not responding. And I think, um, you know, a lot of nonprofits are fearful um, that, uh, you know, they're not quite sure how to communicate with their donors. If they're bothering their donors, is it, are they not the right organization to be seeking funds at this time? Cause they're not, you know, on the quote unquote front lines. Um, and a lot of them, you know, quite frankly, didn't have their house in order going into this crisis. And so are scrambling to do things like apply for some of this federal loans Mm-hmm. And the problem is they're going to lose out on the opportunity to get a lot of this funding, um, the payroll protection and other federal loans. And so, you know, that's a problem. And for for foundations, you know, or philanthropists in general, they have, you know, it's a privileged position. These are people who have so much money, they have extra money to give it away to other people, right? right. And even if they're losing some of it in the stock market, you know, it's still, so hiding is a little bit easier, Um but, you know, there's a lot of opportunities and ways that funders can be giving back that they're not taking advantage of. So that's one thing that I'm seeing. I think the other thing I'm seeing on the entirely flip side is um, a lot of both philanthropists and nonprofits that are innovating and shedding previously held restrictions and kind of policies and procedures and fears and dramatically changing, uh, adapting um, and innovating their work. And so, for example, on the philanthropic side, the, the, the grant giver side, you know, a lot of foundations 
you know, had previously never been willing to provide core operating support, general support to nonprofits, and now are switching their existing grants to become, you know, from program and project specific grants with all these restrictions, they're unrestricting those grants and making them core operating support. They are saying to their grantees, never mind the deadlines, just, you know, we'll get back to you later this year. And by the way, like, don't worry about the report. We'll write it for you. Like, we'll just call you. Um, Don't worry about applications. You know, here's money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and even, even better with all of it, a message of like, we trust you nonprofit leaders. We we believe that you will actually use this money as you best see fit. Mm. And we'll just like, wait to hear how that goes, which is great. You know, it's really amazing. And it's funny to me because, you know, there's been a lot of people advocating for these kinds of changes in the philanthropic sector for a long time. Mm -hmm. And there's been many funders that have been willing to act this way, but there's a whole lot more that are that are making these changes. And similarly on the nonprofit side, you know, nonprofits that are willing to try new things like switch in-person events to virtual events, like practically overnight, which takes tremendous courage. Yeah. Um, and are willing to adapt, you know, their services and, you know, offer new things or offer it in different ways to people, you know, even sometimes at no um, without being able to generate any revenue, you know, the, the ballet companies and the arts organizations that are offering free art online, um, which is really smart because it's keeping their membership engaged and potentially reaching different audiences mm-hmm. who will be there. I believe when, you know, we return, well, there is no, there is no new normal, but yeah, when we, yeah. uh, when things calm down, I guess I'll say. <laughs> yeah. And then the third um, is, Really, the, the, the important need to, to shift strategy at this time. Um, and, you know, we are living in a different world than we, I mean, literally everyone in the world is living in a different world than we were five months ago. So if you had a strategic plan, even if it was brand spanking new, you know, five months ago in January or last year, now is the time to pull it out and reflect on what needs to change because it's, I think darn near impossible for it to be completely intact and relevant today. Uh, You know, some things need to um, adapt, you know, some things might stay the same. Some things might need to be abandoned and some things, you know, radically overhauled Mm -hmm. and this can be done quickly and remotely. um, And it really should be done soon because it strategy in my mind provides the right framework for making decisions and allowing you to know what's most important to work on right now. Mm-hmm. For those uh, in, in your first point, which is organizations going into hiding, is it too late or is there a, if you pivot now and you make a turn and you make a conscious effort to say, no, 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 we're done now. We've taken our lumps. We understand that we probably shouldn't have stopped communication altogether and that we should have had this abundance mindset that there is money and value and, and people who want to help, is there time to make a turn now? And what do they do as a first step to begin that process to kind of creep out of the cave and say, is everything still here? And, and what's that first move for them? Yeah, that's a great question. And absolutely, there is no time like the present. And, you know, I think, um, you know, this crisis it will continue. Um, It'll, it'll ebb and flow, it'll evolve, but, you know, I think we need to think about being in here for the long haul 
and things are certainly going to be very different um, and they're going to continue to change. And so I think as nonprofit organizations, we need to think about how do we continuously adapt and also increase our agility so that we're not just adapting, which means responding to change that's you know happening to you like a pandemic mm-hmm. or a recession, but how do nonprofits um, proactively look out ahead, you know, if it's ahead next week or, you know, next year or whatnot and, and look at how, what are, what are some of the changes in the marketplace and the environment, positive or negative, and how do we turn those to our advantage? How do, I de- how do we identify innovations with that? Um, and how do we you know, navigate around some of the challenges? And so um, I think specifically, you know, steps to take would be, one is really t- to refresh your strategy or create one. Um, and I mean, when I say quickly, I mean like by next week. I don't mean at yeah. all what we typically think of, of these elongated strategic planning processes that take six months or a year and there's all this research. I mean, figuring out, okay, where do, you, where do we want to be as an organization by December? You know, like not even a full year, like at the end of the year, right? Who, who do we want to be? What kind of impact do we want to be having? Where are we today? like today, Friday, or today, whatever day you're thinking about it, and how do we get specifically from where we are today to where we want to be, and what are the, I don't know, three to four kind of most critical strategic factors that are going to get us there? If it's, um, we're going to need, you know, we had to furlough our entire team, so in order to uh, get there, we're going to have to rehire, and who do we need to rehire? Like, is it the same people, or is it a different skill set? Or it could be brand recognition, or it could be communications, it could be finances. You know, what are the three to four most important things you need to focus on? Um, and then putting people accountable for them and kind of quickly figuring out just very simply, like, okay, finances, ours are in disarray. So, what are the five activities we have to do next in order to? figure this out. Like A, call our board chair who, you know, for advice on who to talk to. B, find an expert to advise us. C, like find a better bookkeeper. Whatever it is, right? Take a training and kind of move your way forward so that you can understand, okay, this is our financial situation and we can make decisions from it. Or these are the kind of board members we need to have on, or this is how we need to engage our current board, whatever it might be. But, you know, it's it, think of strategy really as your best thinking of the moment. Yeah. You know, and you can adjust this as you go. So get things mm-hmm. moving, make progress. And then in Ju- June or, you know, f- within a few months or in a quarter, check in. Where are we? Adjust and keep moving. I think that's big. And then the second thing is really communication with funders and donors. And, you know, I think there's all this technology that we're using and learning, but I think the most important piece of technology we have is the telephone or the smartphone or whatever it is, right? Like they're sitting pick in up our the pockets. phone. Yeah, they're sitting in our pocket. Right, they're, they're sitting computers. in your pocket. Like pick up the phone and call people. It's built for that. They'll be and delighted to hear from you because no one else is calling them. <laughs> and they're all at home. That's what I've been, ra- I, I've been talking about this. They have, they're sitting at home. They're bored out of their skulls. They can't go anywhere. They're, they want to talk about something other than 
a global pandemic and they want to know what you're doing. And one of the things that I think you touched on is just the speed by which you need to do something and don't wait for it to be perfect. I think a lot of the frozen in place organizations are so concerned that they will say something wrong or say something that's not exactly the way that they had planned it for the last 14 years or two years or whatever it is. And they're worried that they're going to say something that's out of line. And I think that this pandemic has given everybody the, the, uh, is going to give everybody grace to make uh, a couple of errors if they're moving the needle forward and they're doing it for their mission and they're going to follow their true north of, of what they're doing as an organization, if you're just moving for the love of God, just move. And then that will then, like you said, give you a path to realign every two days of say where we are, where we're going and how we're doing it. Do not let perfection get in the way of progress. Dang it. <laughs> I, hallelujah. I hear you. No, I totally agree. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, obviously many people right now feel very overwhelmed, right? And you sit down at your desk or your laptop or your, you know, kitchen table or whatever you're doing. And you're like, during the headlights of like Mm -hmm. your day, like, Oh my God, I have like 16,000 things to do. What do I do? And, you know, to me, that's why having a strategy is helpful because with that comes prioritization. So you know what you're doing and then you know, the three to four, like most important things you need to focus on. So if it's, you know, get your finances in order and begin communicating with your donors, like that's your marching orders. Like that's it. Mm -hmm. So that's how you should be spending your day. And so to me, um, while it does require a little bit of work up front, it it unleashes clarity and the ability to prioritize, not just for your organization, but for everyone on the team, because everyone will have a role to play. Mm -hmm. Um, But even let's just say, you know, you can't fathom coming up with your strategic, your strategy right now, at least you can think about, well, what are the two to three to four things that are most important for this organization or nonprofit to do in the next two months, right? Yeah. Get to agreement on that. And, th- and then just focus on those things and like pick one. It really doesn't matter. Just pick one and move. Yeah. I, th- I think that it, that's such an excellent segue into the next um, a point that you brought up with people and organizations and even foundations, um, uh, private foundations, adjusting strategy uh, on the fly and and kind of uh, sloughing off the way that things have always done as a action step recently. I think, and I've been saying this, uh, or the realization I've been saying this is, there's not a better group of individuals than those who work in the nonprofit world to adjust to a global pandemic because we've been doing this our entire lives. You have a hey board member that says, hey, we need to do a gala and raise $100,000. Do it by next week. Or we need to ask this person who we have zero relationship with for a major gift because our finances are in chaos and we need to do it. This is what we've been doing forever. And so if there's a group of individuals, nonprofit world is built for taking this head on and swiftly changing. But what you said was interesting, because I think this is what I've uh, realized is the private foundations and the, and the um, uh, donor advised funds who sit on a mountain of wealth. And I'm glad that you're seeing that they're kind of shedding off their old ways and So two questions. One, if you're a small and medium-sized nonprofit and you live in a community in which those private foundations have not aggressively unleashed their funding that's available, 
how do you have that conversation? And number two that we can talk about um, is when this calms down, how do we prevent them from going back to their old ways? Because I think once it happens, the floodgates are done and you're not going to be able to put the, the lid back on the bottle here of you did it once, you can continue doing this and everything was okay. But I think there's going to be this natural um, instinct to contract once this thing has slowed down. How do we as nonprofit leaders in the community say, no, 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 no. You don't get to do that anymore. We, we know that we can work together. This is way more fun. So let's, go, let's start there. So how do, we, um, how do we have that conversation and then how do we continue this? Yeah, that's great. So how do you have that conversation? First is, I think you need to adjust your mindset as a nonprofit leader. Yeah. And the mindset really needs to be, you are a peer and you are a partner. And you're not asking for something, you're offering value to your donors. Yes! Yes! <laughs> yes. And I write about this um, as, uh, I'm not sure if we mentioned this at the beginning, but I do have a new book out oh. called Delusional Altruism. Yes, we're so going to get to that. And one so of the excited. things I write about in this book is having a, a scarcity mindset and then also an abundance mindset. And I think in this instance, the abundance mindset, the scarcity mindset is we're bothering you. We have our handout. Oh dear funder. Could you please give us some money, but maybe we're not worthy. Um, there's more important causes happening in the world right now. So we'll just wait. Uh, a scarce, an abundance mindset is, you know, Hey funder, like you're not the one delivering on your mission. Like we're the one delivering on your mission, right? Like the donors generally speaking are not the ones providing, you know, homeless services, building low-income housing, you know, uh, teaching early childhood education, right? They're funding it, which is great. And, but, um, you know, you need to recognize that you as the nonprofit, like you're the one enabling the foundation of the funder to meet their mission. So you have a valuable role to play. And, you know, if your cause was important um, last year, I can guarantee you it's important today, right? It's just maybe important differently or there's a different nuance to it, but it's still important today. And so, you know, you're providing an opportunity for your donors to help, to contribute, to meet their mission, quite frankly, to feel good about themselves. You know, in some cases, it's an ego, but genuinely speaking, you know, these are individuals who really want to do the right thing and make a difference but they can't do that if they don't know you and they don't know what you're doing, how you're responding or how whatever your issue is, is um, being impacted and what solutions you have mm -hmm. to, you know, to address them. And so I think it's a mindset start first and foremost. And then with that mindset is, you know, reaching out uh, to funders and donors and I think first it's, you know, asking them how they're doing, you know, if it's somebody that you have a relationship yeah. with checking in on them mm -hmm. um, and, you know, letting them know that you've been thinking about them, you want to know how they are and then listening. Um, and that's because it's a relationship and, you know, um, going back to a, 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 set, a different kind of crisis um, back about 11 years ago when um, I can't remember how many billions of dollars were lost in the Bernie Mad Madoff um, Ponzi scheme. Yeah. But there were a lot of donors that lost, you know, they lost a lot of money, a lot of their wealth. And suddenly 
to their embarrassment, like they couldn't afford to go to the, your gala, you know, they couldn't afford to, to give money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their identity was tied up in, you know, being part of these nonprofits and being longstanding donors and board members who contributed and buying tables and whatnot. And, you know, there's nonprofits that saw those donors as like, well, I guess they can't give us any money this year. We're just going to stop talking to them or we feel bad or we don't want to like, you know, have an awkward conversation. Mm-hmm. So we'll just like ignore them. And then there were nonprofits that reached out to those donors and said, hey, hope you're okay. We're thinking about you. And, you know, the gala wouldn't be the same without you. Can you please come as our guest? Right. Mm-hmm. And those donors, like, have a lot of loyalty to those nonprofits that were there for them in times that were really difficult in their lives. And so I think, you know, again, sort of seeing your donors as other human beings uh, and being there for them and then, you know, then letting them know what you're working on, how this is impacting you, the, the challenges you've had, the ways you've pivoted and adapted and the opportunities you see going forward and the ways that their money could be helpful to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you're not going to walk away from that conversation with less money than you walked into it with, right? Like there's no downside. No. And so I think, you know, it's important to have those conversations. And I think that's really one of the things that, and I love that point, which is it, you're all on the same team. They want to see you succeed. They want, they've been there through you, the tough times and the bad times and whatever. I want them to do great things. So I think that's really kind of a fun thing. I really like that. Going pivoting forward, like how do we let them know or foundations know what, how to not have this stop? How to not have this stop? Is that what you said? Yeah. Like how do how do we not go back to the way things were? Yeah. So as I was saying earlier, um, right, right. So again, I think it's really amazing all these kind of new best practices that many foundations and corporate giving programs are adopting, you know, unrestricting grants, um, getting the money out the door much faster, um, eliminating the need for like six people to sign and approve a check or even have, you know, I mean, a lot of my clients, foundation clients entered this crisis, unable to issue grants without physically writing checks. In, and the checks were in the office and they were on stay-at-home orders and couldn't get to the office. <laughs> it's silly, but true. Um, but anyway, so a lot of really a t- tremendous amount of funders are changing how they're, how they're giving. And, you know, my hope is that those practices stick. My concern is that there's like some future date in the world, like let's just say, I don't know, October 15th. And all of a sudden, all of those best practices are going to get like collectively sucked back into, you know, foundation boardrooms. And we'll hear this like loud whooshing sound as all of those practices come back and like get locked down (laughs) and never to be seen again. So I'm trying to prevent that from happening. But I think communication is actually the way to do it. And so I think, you know, for the for the funders that are saying to nonprofit leaders, here's a core operating support grant we completely trust that you'll do the right thing and we'll get back to you, you know, get back to us later this year. Like, that's awesome. And if I were the nonprofit leader, I would get back to the donor regularly to update them on progress so that you can just kind of reassure them the money is being well spent. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're seeing. And and I mean like an email or a phone call. I don't mean like a report, you know, and just why not keep, 
your donors appraised of what's happening and how the money is being put to good use, sharing some stories, because that's going to feed, you know, their belief that they did the right thing and they can share those stories with their boards and whatnot. Um, I think that is a tremendously helpful way to go about doing that. And then, you know, I think at the end, you know, demonstrating how the monies were actually spent, even if it was for general operating support, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and all you did, quote unquote, all you did was fund, you know, the executive director and the development director during that time. Well, that's great because A, you're still in existence, <laughs> you know, in the recovery period and B, you know, you've raised money or you've built more relationships or whatever you've accomplished, um, even if your services had to go on hold. So I think, um, yeah, I think those, you know, it's really all about communication. We can't end this conversation without talking about, you have a brand new book. It is out. Is it coming out? It's coming. It's out. You can get this right now. Delusional altruism. It's out. Yes. Go get it. Let's talk about delusional altruism. What is this book about? And, uh, and give us kind of a synopsis on why you wrote it and, uh, and what, and why it's needed right now. Yeah. So yes, Delusional Altruism, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and uh, Books a Million. And I even saw it at Target uh, online recently. Um, But it's, I wrote the book, it just published in March and I wrote it um, because after 20 years of advising philanthropists of all kinds, you know, corporate giving programs, ultra high net worth donors, everyday givers, foundation leaders, I recognize that you know, these are people who genuinely want to make a difference. They really want to change the world in meaningful ways, but they are getting in their own way. Uh, They're preventing themselves from having the impact that they seek. They are holding on to sort of these illogical thoughts and ideas, and it's tripping them up. And often they don't even realize it. And so I wrote the book to help funders recognize how this happens and why it happens, and then what they can do differently and how they can have more of a transformational impact on whatever issue or cause or community they care about. And, and to do that by transforming themselves and transforming how they give. Mm-hmm. Is there one general message that you, while writing the book, just said, this is going to, this is going to be so great if a nonprofit organization picks up this book and reads it. Yeah, I think for a nonprofit to pick up the book and read it, the value is really understanding your donors and understanding um, what's what's holding them back, um, what's preventing them from having the impact with your organization that you want. I think it's really kind of a really good insider's guide for nonprofit leaders to understand kind of what's happening in philanthropy and why things are the way they are. So, you know, I talk about in the book, I mean, talk about fear and overwhelm that we're feeling now. I have an entire chapter about fear and an entire chapter about overwhelm and how those two things hold back funders. Like you wouldn't think that a philanthropist would be fearful, but I'm here to tell you, even in the best of times, they're very fearful. And one of the ways nonprofits experience that is donors often fear losing control they want to tightly control their money. Right. And so that's why all these restrictions are put on you as the nonprofit. You know, they're, that's why they're asking for all this detail and like metrics and detailed reports and 
it's really fundamentally based on fear of losing control. And I think understanding, um, understanding that I think is really helpful. It's also, you know, philanthropy is a field that typically is very slow. Um, I actually use an analogy of sloths in the book about how, you know, funders move too slowly in decision-making and kind of these processes and practices that they create for themselves. Uh, and there's lots of ways that they can speed things up. So I think the, the book for a nonprofit leader is very helpful to get an insider's guide into your donors and what's happening for them and how you can help them, how you can help them to help you essentially. But also I think all of the ideas in the book are applicable to the nonprofit leader directly. You know, I talk about, as I mentioned, having a scarcity mentality versus an abundance mentality. I talk about how um, oftentimes questions get in our way and how um, by asking the wrong questions, we go down the wrong path. And I think often for both nonprofits and philanthropists, one of those wrong questions that trips up trips us up is asking how before asking what. So too often, um, you know, the how is the tactic and the what is the strategy. And we, we kind of jump to tactics, right? So like, how should we communicate with our donors? Is it social media? Is it Twitter? Is it email? Before asking like, what are we trying to accomplish by communicating with our donors and who are they? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think too often that's a problem. And similarly, you know, getting clarity on what are the right questions to ask. And one of the right questions is starts with asking why. And again, you know, there's lots of great ideas coming at us from all different directions in the nonprofit sector. Um, thing, you know, kind of the, the shiny squirrels uh, that we chase. And often we have to come back to, well, why is that important? Why is that going to help us? And is that going to help us advance our mission or is it going to take us off course? Um, so those, yeah, so those are some of the ideas that I share in the book. Chris, thank you so much for being on the official Do Good Better podcast. I have not had a, a, a delightful conversation like this all week because I've been sort of trapped inside sort of doing <laughs> paperwork and things. And this was just the most refreshing end of the week ever. And I appreciate you. So how do people find you? They say, I want to get, I want to tap Chris's brain because she's a brilliant genius. How do we get a hold of you? How can people reach out mm-hmm. and get, not only get your book, uh, but get your advice and any other things that your wisdom will in, enhance the nonprofit world? How do we get a hold of you? Awesome. Thank you. Uh, well, my website is putnam-consulting.com. So that's the best way to reach me. Um, my book is available. Uh, the book website is delusionalaltruism.com. Uh, and as I mentioned, it's also available uh, at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So those would be the two best ways to reach me. Outstanding. And of course, those will all be in the show notes. Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on the official Do Good Better podcast. It has been a pleasure. And I'm so glad that I'm now a super fan of you. (laughs) Thank you so much. And I'm a super fan of you too. Thanks. We'll see you guys next time. There are countless videos, books, articles, and folks out there with suggestions on how to raise more money. Of course, that's a major problem. Too much information. Do Good University has an online library of lectures, courses, and trainings that concentrate on one thing, 
making fundraising simple. Come join other like-minded do-gooders who are looking to unclutter their fundraising life. Enroll at Do Good University today at dogoodbetterconsulting.com.